1: Welcome to the show. Today, I want to talk about challenge. Now, all of you know that as a leader, you need to challenge your team and especially to challenge them to think differently or to do more or to make a change. I hear that from leaders all the time. But as a team member, you also know on occasion you want to challenge your boss's thinking and your boss's decision. And most people tell me they do that somewhat with trepidation, not wondering how far to go or wondering how far to go if they can, if it's accepted and so on. And then the same applies to your peers. There are regular occasions where you would like to challenge your peers' thinkings and decisions. And you also wonder, is it safe? How do I do that? Can I do that in a good way? Now, we know through tons of research and decades of experience that when teams can truly challenge each other, when there's enough psychological safety to do so, then good things tend to happen in terms of collaboration and innovation and performance. Yet it's easier said than done, this think challenge. So the focus today is how to challenge and what conditions have to be established in order to be able to effectively challenge. And we want to talk about this from a peer-to-peer point of view, from a boss upwards point of view, and from the boss downwards point of view, challenge in all three of those realms. Now, my guest to get today is Dr. John Blakey. John was named as one of the top thought leaders globally on organizational trust, and he was named by the Trust Across America in 2016. And that is coming from his prize-winning doctoral research done at Ashton Business School and his acclaimed book, The Trusted Executives. And we've done a show prior on exactly that book. But in addition to that book, he did an earlier book called Challenging Coaching, which was co-authored with Ian Day, and it's been hailed as a game changer in the profession um, and is still going strong, even though that was published in 2012. That's what we're going to talk about today. How do you challenge? So, John, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much, Wonder, and great to be back again after our episode on trust. Uh, great to focus on this word challenge with you and the listeners
1: today. I'm really looking forward to it, because I, I get this question all the time, and I think it's hard to know. So let's start. Why is this topic of challenge so important to you? Why did you write this book, Challenging well, Coaching? yeah, on the first
2: page of the book, um, Ian and I said uh, we'd written this book because we love a challenge. Um, we love a challenge, and we don't think that we're alone in that. A lot of the clients that we worked with over the years as executive coaches you know, they're robust, ambitious, confident people, and they relish a challenge as long as it's delivered with the right intention. And, uh, you know, in my own life, uh, we were just talking before the show that two weeks ago, I finished my my doctorate, my PhD, it's taken me five years to climb that mountain, you know, at the age of 55, you know, why, why am I still doing things like that? It's because I love a challenge. I love to climb those mountains. And, and I love working with With leaders and with teams that also are focused on climbing mountains and to climb a mountain, to climb a steep mountain, you need to have that element of of challenge as well as the element of
1: support for a, a high performing team. Okay, so I agree with you. I don't think I have ever met an executive that didn't love a challenge. What they don't love is challenge some cases or by some people. So, can't, so can you distinguish when the challenge is sort of accepted and when it's not so accepted?
2: Yeah, I mean, we have this phrase in the book called the loving boot. Um, and and we, we talk about the loving boot as a style of engagement whether it be as a coach or, or a leader. And I think, you know, the phrase, the loving boot, is this idea that we all benefit from a, a kick every so often, but we need to feel that it's coming from someone who has the best intentions for us and our, and our growth uh, and our fulfillment. Um, so trust and challenge, uh, it's not a coincidence that, that, you know, my two books are focused on those two words because I think they come as a, as a package. And trust needs to precede challenge. The more trust there is in the relationship, the more that foundation of trust has been built, then in our experience, the more someone will receive a challenge without getting defensive um, and without it damaging the relationship. In fact, when you build challenge on top of trust, it actually takes the trust to a whole new level. So you can generate a virtuous cycle where trust begets challenge and challenge begets trust. And that's how you take individuals and teams on this journey to high performance.
1: Okay. That makes sense because without the basis of trust, I don't know where the other person is coming from and it's harder to understand their intention. It's hard to imagine that their intention is necessarily a good one. And certainly somebody who bothers to put themselves out to take the risk of challenging you kind of does reinforce in my sense, that bit of um, trust. So I see why you would say trust precedes challenge but then challenge reinforces trust okay yeah yeah so um are there times when we should be challenging and times when we shouldn't be challenging so i get that trust is a foundation but are there any other dynamics going on that make a difference of when this is appropriate or not
2: well it's uh it's it's always going to feel like a risk when you uh challenge someone And one of the key components that gives us a license to challenge is being very clear about the shared goal. So if you and I are working in a team where there's a very clear shared goal, then we can challenge on behalf of the goal. And that also helps greatly in that challenge being received positively. Because if I know you're challenging me on behalf of the goal rather than on behalf of your ego, um, then... I again can see how that is helping you and me and us to move forward and a lot of this um, approach to challenge I learned from my work in the world of sport so I, I work a lot with business leaders but I also have worked with Olympic sports coaches and Team GB sports coaches and in the world of sport I've seen this dynamic of support and challenge um, re- role modeled um, in an expert way and i and brought a lot of that experience back into my business work because I think in the world of sport the goal is often very very clear and very tangible so if I'm working with an athlete and they want to win a gold medal in the Olympics and they've committed and contracted with me to help them achieve that goal as a coach then they've also given me a license to support them and to challenge them on behalf of that elite performance and I think once that gold medal is very clear It allows both parties and all parties involved to use challenge on behalf of the goal. In business, I sometimes find the goal isn't sufficiently clear or isn't sufficiently inspiring that it creates that environment where challenge becomes accepted as a cultural norm because we all care so much about winning that gold medal, whatever that gold medal is.
1: Ooh, that's an important, I'm sorry, I have two follow-up questions on that one. So that's a really important notion is that when we are committed to the goal, if I get this sense right, that the ability to challenge in the service of the goal is much more readily accepted than any other way. I'm challenging because I don't like the idea, or I'm challenging because you might get ahead of me, or I'm challenging just because I'm a challenging personality. Yes. So it's in service of the goal that yeah. makes it easier to hear that hard part of the message I didn't really want to hear. And you're right. In business, goals are, A, they're not very inspiring often. They're very ambiguous. They often are moving. So I hit one goal, and then there's another yes. one. It just seems like the post moved right on down the line. Um, and a host of other things. Stuff goes wrong that we can't even meet the goal. And we disagree. I have one goal, and you have a completely opposite goal. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I want to go backwards. It's an important point, but I want to go backwards. You know, I think a lot of people who don't do sports have this mythology about the sports coach as a, as someone who yells and screams mm. and really pushes you hard. What's your view of that as a coaching style? Does that work? Does that not work? Well, I think I think
2: there is a a stereotype around that with a sports coach, but having worked with Olympic sports coaches and seen them firsthand, what I've noticed with the best sports coaches is that they do understand this dynamic between support and challenge. And they do understand that optimum performance is achieved when there is an appropriate balance between support and challenge. But if you're aiming for that gold medal, then the license that is created around that goal is to take the support to whole new levels and to take the challenge to whole new levels. So I've been in the presence of, I can think particularly of a of a rowing coach that I worked with and, and an athlete, and I watched them on their journey towards winning an Olympic medal over a period of years. And in that time, I saw moments of support that brought tears to my eyes um, because it was so touching, so heartfelt. There was such a bond of trust. And I saw moments of challenge that made me wince and made me turn away. Um, and it's that juxtaposition that I've seen in the best sports coaches. That again, I'm very passionate about helping leaders um, generate similar intensity around the level of support and level of ju- challenge in their in their relationships.
1: All right. So within that lies, if we're going to really do challenge, that I have to get much deeper on the support. I mean, you said earlier trust. Yep. But this notion of really deep support is you know kind of that puts it on a whole new understanding of what we mean by trust, so can you describe what that really looks like this level of support well it's linked it 's linked to this
2: definition of, of trust so in my in my work on trust, trust is defined as ability uh, times integrity times benevolence and I think this word benevolence is key because benevolence is about human care, compassion, and kindness. And in the great uh, leadership relationships I've seen and coaching relationships I've seen in sport, for example, this benevolence is very clearly there and it's felt as a very supportive component of the relationship. In business, at times, I think we mechanize business. I think we make it transactional. And I think in the process of doing that, we we keep the ability and the integrity, but sometimes we sacrifice the benevolence, And I think if you want to generate relationships where there's that real heartfelt sense of support, then that benevolence is an absolutely vital characteristic of, of trust. And if you, if you get that into the formula of trust alongside you know, ability and integrity, then you lay a challenge on top of that level of uh, supportive trust in relationship. To me, that's a, a cocktail that is, is very powerful in terms of um, driving performance.
1: I like that, that sense of heartfelt support. John, I'm certain that the women that I work with in organizations are looking for that level of heartfelt support from the managers they're going to trust. And I'm equally certain when that level of trust is created, her career excels. Certain about that. And I'm also certain because part of it is I think challenge comes in those equations. I've always wanted to describe what is it for the women that it seems like their careers are just going really, really well and the ones that are not going so well. And I think this is it, that notion of benevolence and the notion of challenge. All right. Now, having said that, can you give me an example of a leader who has created this level of benevolence and what did it look like?
2: Well, I think, I think on the on the public stage right now, um, I'm fascinated by uh, Jacinta Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and I think in her reaction to the recent events and the Christchurch massacre in that, that country, and indeed throughout her premiership, I think we're seeing somebody there role modelling some, some fascinating um, characteristics which align with a lot of what we've been talking about here, that there is there is someone there who's on the one hand very... Very human, um, we pick up an immediate sort of benevolence uh, that she seems to care at a personal level um, in her interactions with the people around her, but she 's also not uh, timid in issuing a challenge and in speaking her truth and in using that as a transformational uh, tool within her within her leadership so i 'm fascinated by that as an example in political life at the moment, which obviously for, gives us a lot of uh, signals about leadership. And, uh, you know, we, we see different political leaders with different leadership styles. But I think that's a very interesting style that's being practiced there. And I, I actually personally think that that is the future uh, leadership that we are, many of us, looking for and waiting for as we sort of transition into a, a world where, the old style of leadership where challenge was often about, you know, bullying, dominant, power-driven, ego-driven behaviours, that type of leadership seems to be rapidly losing its licence. Um, but, if, but if it's going to lose its licence, we need to find something new that is equally effective in terms of delivering results but also respects the values and our expectations of, of benevolent behaviour, which I think is now much more explicit uh, and important to, to many people in in our societies.
1: I agree. It strikes me, you know, of all the stuff that we've said and written and talked about the millennial generation, that you've captured the heart of what it is I think the millennials are seeking at the moment. So, you know, the notion is that they want constant feedback. And the mantra in the world is they want positive feedback. Well, when you actually talk to millennials, that isn't necessarily the case, that they know they have a lot to learn, and they're eager to learn, and what they want is constructive feedback. Now, please don't pile it on. Please don't make everything I've ever done wrong, because what's the point? What seems to be that's missing in the equation in working with millennials is this notion of benevolence challenging in the context of benevolence. And yeah. then I think in my experience is you're going to find that they will respond positively. And that's exactly what you're talking about here, that I don't think it's just millennials. I think we're all looking for, in a new way, this notion of benevolence and then the challenge coming out of that benevolence.
2: Yeah, I think, I think you know, there are many factors that are maybe driving the timing of, of these shifts and, and maybe the millennials, uh, you know, are catching that that bug earlier than than others. But I do think uh, across all generations, um, there is a sense that things are changing and that what used to work doesn't work as well as it did. And we need to craft new ways of engaging and inspiring and creating sustainable performance. And in the midst of that change, I think one of the temptations for some leaders is that, that they think, I can't challenge in the way I used to because it's not acceptable and therefore I won't challenge at all. And I think that's clearly not a sustainable leadership stance. I mean, you you know, we we have to be able to challenge, but we need to contract around the nature, intention and specifics of that challenge in a way that's very different to the way that we did it, you know, the way I experienced it happening 10 or 15 years ago.
1: It's interesting. Um, I often say of teams and to leaders, and particularly when I'm talking about inclusive culture, that we have to be able to have conflict. And everybody struggles with the word conflict because that connotes the notion that we've had a fight and we don't get along. And that isn't what I mean. I think the word you're using here is actually the better word, that we have to be able to challenge that we have to be able to say the truth, that we have to be able to disagree, that we have to be able to put that on the table and have the discussion in a constructive way, which I think is what you mean by challenge.
2: Yeah, and in the the book we talk about, Ian and I talk about the zone of uncomfortable debate. And we say that, you know, 80% of the time, maybe even 90% of the time as leaders, we're operating in the zone of comfortable debate. Um, but if we really want to take performance to the next level, if we're really in pursuit of that gold medal, then there are times when we need to name the elephant in the room. Uh, We need to get to that unspoken truth, and to do that, we need to, as leaders, take the risk of entering the zone of uncomfortable debate. Now, the zood or the zone of uncomfortable debate, is is something we talk a lot in in the workshops that we do uh, with the book, and I remember one workshop that we had where we started the workshop saying, you know, what, what people expect to get from today. And one, one hand went up and uh, uh, a leader in the, in the audience said, uh, what I'd like to get from today is I'd like to be comfortable entering the zone of uncomfortable debate. And, uh, you know, I, I looked at him and said, well, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> it, it's always uncomfortable to enter the zone of uncomfortable debate. and um, That's why it's called the zone of uncomfortable debate. So why would you do it? You do it because you're in service to the collective goal. And that is sufficiently important to you as a leader, that you're willing to have that feeling of discomfort because you know that without it, you're not going to get to the heart of the issue and you're not going to create a transformational space, which is the sort of space that leads to teams doing great things, winning gold medals and delivering on their potential.
1: Yeah, And this is where we come back to the goal. And what I think is interesting that you said there is this notion that we do it in service of the collective goal, which means that there has to be a goal and we all have to be somehow bought into that goal or believing or contributing or something to that. We need each other for that goal. One of the things that I see missing more often in teams than not, and then it makes it hard to do this um, uncomfortable debate.
2: Yeah, and just just one thing I'd, I'd throw in on that about the way, again, the nature of goals in business is changing. I think there was a time when the goal, it was sufficient to say that the goal is um, we're going to um, increase our return on uh, investment by 30%. You know, that, that, that everything was measured as a financial expression of the goal. And the business was really only ever to ex- expected to express its goals in terms of financial measures. I think in this age that we're in now, the sorts of goals that really inspire people and really uh, give people that motivation to challenge and to think that it's worth it are goals that are bigger than just making money, bigger than making money for you or for me or for us. It's obviously that's part of what business always needs to be about. But I think more and more businesses now realize that their goals need to contribute on a broader scale, that there are issues in the world that business can influence. And our stakeholders want to see us engage with those and integrate those goals so that we have that, again, passion, that motivation that does give people, make it worth it for people to have these challenging conversations.
1: And that's why then in that statement, John, this notion of purpose has become such a powerful word because a purpose is our, at least at the moment, way of describing that bigger goal, that bigger mission, that thing beyond our immediate financial return. And I think that's what, I think that is go hand in hand. That has, is clearly becoming more motivational. It's clear, you can see it in a group's eyes, how powerful that sense of purpose is about. And yeah. I think that's what you're talking about.
2: Yeah. And if you, if you, if you and I have a, a conversation that, that is closely linked to our sense of purpose then we will make that extra effort to go the extra mile and 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 speak our truth and, and have that challenging conversation, go into that zone of uncomfortable debate because it's worth it. If, it, if it's close to my purpose, I'm going to think it's worth it. It's worth okay. the intensity. It's worth the, the tension that might be um, involved in that in the short term because the longer term goal makes it worthwhile. And I think, we have to realize that people very easily if they don't think that this is linked to their sense of purpose then they can dock out they they will they will disengage and they'll they'll say it's it's not worth it why would i why would i have all this hassle yeah. you know it's not a mountain that i want to climb so so why would i why would i you know pursue that so so i do think this this purpose this goal setting And really being clear and crisp about that is is one of the prerequisites to create an environment where where challenging conversations will will happen more naturally and with greater um, positivity.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I I was working um, last week with a team, so the leader and his direct reports. We have sort of a half day, three quarters of a day talking about the team and the interpersonal dynamics on the team, actually the better part of a full day, and then followed by some other activities that are going on in the organization. And that team, you know, we did a lovely job talking about what the issues are and what style they wanted to work with and what personality styles and all that kind of routine. But I couldn't get them to say what they were, what any real issues were concerns about. They were trying to be... We're projecting an image of we get along all so well. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, on the one hand, you might say, yes, we get along so well. On the other hand, you might say you're kidding yourself. You can't get along all the time if you're trying to do anything. Or on the third hand, what I'd say is actually they didn't have a collective goal. Yeah. They each had individual goals that hopefully rolls up to the right thing, but there wasn't a place where they needed each other in order to come to a conclusion and make it ha- make it happen. And I pushed them hard on identifying what those would be because without that, there was no way they were going to push through to have the hard debates, And just yeah. in case in point, after the whole event is seen and done, in debriefing, one person says, oh, yeah, we have a major problem and these two don't talk to each other. And I'm thinking, I just spent a day with you and you are now telling me this. Talk mm-hmm. about the zone of uncomfortable debate. Nobody was going there because at that moment for that team, it wasn't worth it. That's right. That's right. Okay. So
2: I think. Firstly, we need to create that, that environment where challenge becomes worth it. And then we need to think, OK, how do we do it? You know, how yeah. do we do this thing called challenge? And that, was, that okay. was a very significant part of the work that Ian and I um, yeah. put into the book was um, create the environment and then help people learn how to do this well, how to do it skillfully and yeah. how to become masters of, of
1: challenge. Okay, so we spent all of this time talking about the environment and the climate. Let's talk exactly about that. Is there a process for challenging people? Is, are, are there techniques we should be aware of?
2: Well, in, in our book, we created an acronym. You know, every, every book, every consultant has an acronym, so we, we were no exception there. We created an acronym in challenging coaching called FACS. And FACS was our mnemonic for, for creating a memorable word that captured the five cornerstones of a challenging leadership style so in facts um, the f is feedback the a is accountability the c is courageous goals which we've already spent some time talking about as as one of the uh, prerequisites t is tension how do we modulate tension in a conversation how do we keep the tension constructive and the s is systems thinking which links to what we said earlier about the collective, that we challenge at times on behalf of the goal. We also at times challenge on behalf of the collective system. So if I'm in a family or if I'm in a team, um, I, I can challenge as the leader on behalf of the collective, on behalf of the team, rather than simply that this is a challenge purely about me and you. Actually, no, it's a challenge about us because we have come together to achieve something special and that's a system of people and we need to be guardians of that system. And sometimes that involves challenge as well as support. Right. So these five words, uh, feedback, accountability, courageous goals, tension and systems thinking are the five buckets that I look to in my my own coaching. And if I get stuck and I want to up the challenge, I'll think about those five words and I'll think which of those five words can help me now in terms of taking the challenge to the next level in this relationship.
1: Okay, so we've talked a lot about the courageous goals and we've talked a lot about the systems thinking. Tell me what you mean by feedback and accountability.
2: So feedback, feedback is the breakfast of, of champions. And if you look at the research on feedback, um, it's interesting that people who are new to a role, so if you've got a new member of, of the team, uh, they will respond better to positive affirmative feedback so people who are on a learning curve they're encouraged and their confidence is built by positive affirmative feedback however people who have climbed a learning curve and are already proficient at the job that they do those people will typically benefit more from challenging feedback because actually they're already confident they know what they're doing and your your feedback your challenging feedback is not doesn't have the same risk of undermining their, their confidence because they've got that secured. What they will benefit from much more now is, is bringing in a more challenging aspect to the feedback. And so, in the F in Facts, it's particularly focused on how do I deliver challenging feedback? You know, what phrases, what approach could I take in order to provide feedback that provides this high performer with new data? that will help them take their performance up a level so that's that's feedback the breakfast of, of champions accountability so accountability is protection from our infinite capacity for self deception that's my that's my favorite quote quote on, a, on accountability that and and the more senior we are the senior we are often the more self deception we indulge in and therefore we do need people around us to keep us honest you know one, one client of mine said you know every town needs a sheriff and every needer leads a sheriff, you know, that we need to create that accountability that allows people to challenge us around, you know, have you done it? Um, are you living up to the values that you espouse, um, you know, in our, in our corporate language? Uh, are you living up to the expectations in the relationships that we have in this team? And can we have conversations about where we make mistakes and how we might improve upon that, again, without it descending into a destructive, defensive cycle. So accountability can operate at the level of um, actions, it can operate at the level of relationships, and it can operate at the level of the system, i.e. the goals, the values, the mission of the, of the wider organization. Great.
1: That, you know, having just said this, the feedback is the breakfast of champions. It's now very clear to me why it is millennials are responding so positively to more positive feedback, a little bit of constructive, but not too much. They're on a learning curve. And what you need is a thing that builds your confidence, not one that destroys your confidence. And yet when I am more proficient, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to be less defensive because I know I am competent. My confidence is there already, and it's in that context that I can actually take the challenging feedback that's going to give me the nudge to move yet a way ahead. Okay. All right, John, we're going to take a break here, but before we go, tell us a tiny bit about tension. How is it that we modulate the tension? Tension,
2: um, there's a piece of research that was carried out in the early 20th century by um, two psychologists called Yerkes and Dodson, and they created something called the yerkes-dodson curve and the yerkes-dodson curve demonstrates scientifically that we all do our best work at an optimum level of tension but what's interesting about that curve that bell-shaped curve that we all have is that your yerkes-dodson curve will be different to my yerkes-dodson curve so one of the challenges for the leader is to calibrate the yerkes-dodson curve the tension curve for different members of their team because if you can do that and if you can break the assumption that everybody's attention curve must be the same as yours then you will realize that different levels of challenge and support will work in a different mix for different people. Um, What's very stressful for one person, for another person who's got a much thicker skin if we can use that language, they'll, they'll only be just waking up when somebody else is overwhelmed And so part of our job as a leader is not to have this vanilla approach that everybody does their best work at the same point in this cycle of tension. We are all very um, different around that. And the leader's job is to modulate that both over time with one individual, but also to know within the team and within their peers, you know, who responds in which way to what type of intervention. And that's an ongoing dynamic uh, process that I think all leaders will need to become more skilled at if they're going to master this topic of challenge
1: right this notion that I treat everybody the same has more trouble than anyone can imagine I know it comes from a good intention place but it certainly doesn't accommodate the the individual needs desires wants if you will of people and this is yet one more reminder that people's optimum level of tension will vary person to person. Um, And you can see that in a whole host of self-assessment ways. John, we're going to take a break at this point. Um, With me today is Dr. John Blakey. And as you've heard from this, the book that we've been talking about is Challenging Coaching. John's also an expert in trust, as you've also heard. And the second book that I highly recommend is called The Trusted Executive. When we come back, I want to continue this conversation about trust and about challenging upwards. We'll be right back. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to out of the comfort zone.
1: Welcome back. With me today is Dr. John Blakey. John is the author of two books, one called Challenging Coaching, which we've been talking about today, and the other one is The Trusted Executive. I should also say that John is one of the top thought leaders globally on organizational trust and has won awards accordingly. And we've just been talking about some fascinating concepts in how it is that you create an environment where people will challenge each other. It starts with the service of a common goal, something we care enough about that we're willing to enter the zone of uncomfortable um, challenge. I think is how you call it. Of uncom-
2: zone of uncomfortable debate. The debate.
1: Thank you. There's yeah. the uncomfortable. I missed the last word. And that begins with a level of trust. And it also begins with this common goal and purpose even, something beyond just the numbers, and then a sense of benevolence that you actually genuinely care. And then we've talked about a lot of details around how you go about that challenge. FACTS is the acronym. Okay, and we've done this, John, largely in the context of a boss challenging a team member, and we've talked about it in terms of the team challenging each other, but what about the $64,000 question, challenging (laughs) up, challenging my boss, or heaven forbid, my boss's boss? Is there any advice on that?
2: Yes, the first bit of advice is that it can be done, Um, and the second bit of advice is It needs to be handled very carefully. Everything we've said in the first half of the show about trust building, we have to be aware that with the boss and the boss's boss, that's an even more delicate dance that we need to build that level of trust with the boss or the boss's boss. And typically, because of the power dynamic that exists, that's going to take longer to achieve than it would with peers and with members of the team so what I would um, caution with challenging uh, upwards is is that there's a need for patience and trust building and you know one of the keys to trust building with with the boss is to put yourself in their shoes acquaint yourself with their world and understand what it is that causes them grief and trouble and stress and realize that they are human beings and that they will experience these things and if you can start to build a picture of their world and therefore relate to that and empathize with that. That's a very powerful trust building tool alongside, you know, delivering results, which is also an extremely powerful way to sort of build that trust. And, but I think once that is in the bank, um, it might take a bit longer to get that in the bank than with other relationships. But once it's there, then there is that moment of risk taking. You know, we talked earlier about the zone of uncomfortable debate. It always feels uncomfortable and obviously, the first time you challenge your boss, it is going to feel uncomfortable. That's perfectly normal, perfectly natural. But if you don't ever go there, and if you don't ever take that risk, then that relationship is unlikely to achieve its its full potential. And more often than not, in the experience that I've had of challenging my bosses of, of the past, and indeed, when I've been the boss and I've been challenged, uh, whilst in the moment, it might have appeared as a surprise it's often helped me build a new level of respect for the individual, um, partly when the boss receives the challenge well and partly when uh, the more junior person delivers the challenge well. And I think all the things that we've we've talked about in terms of feedback, accountability, systems thinking, practicing those skills with peers and with team members, um, all of those skills can work uh, with with managing upwards. but I would probably say that, you know, we're, we're obviously having to be extra careful and just extra patient to make sure that that trust is there before we take that, that, that leap and, and take that risk.
1: Yeah, um, I often talk about this notion with bosses of paying it forward. Um, so stealing a line from the movie but applying it directly into the the environment so your notion of building that trust because i actually really understand my boss's world i understand their stresses i understand the pressures i understand the political dynamics often is really a relevant issue you know who's where are the tensions for your boss And then you'll hear people um, giving advice about managing a career, and and they'll often say things like, when you see something that's on your boss's plate and you see your boss can't get to it, just take it on and do it. And you're not asking for permission or anything like that. It's just getting it done and helping move the needle for your boss. And that's what I mean by paying it forward. That just sort of I see that this is a problem. I understand a bit about your world. I can take this piece off your plate. You don't have to worry about it. And I think that's part of what you what builds the trust cuz it's my way of demonstrating I see what's going on in your world and I'm delivering at the same time. Yes. yes. Do you think that
2: Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think that that's part of the definitely part of that that trust building cycle. The other the other step I think that often happens is that when the boss asks you a question? Often the boss is looking to see if they get an honest answer, and I think one of the times to really um, take that leap of challenge is if you're asked an open question to to not hold back from sharing your truth in in that in that moment, because uh, that's I think the moment when a lot of bosses are are they are sort of testing to see if um you're willing to share your perception of the truth and they may still they may still challenge that or 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 have a different view but i think the respect that it generates if you have that courage to share your truth that i think is um very valuable to any to any boss because if you think a lot of bosses are surrounded by people who who are not telling them the full truth and who are trying to second guess what they think they want to, uh, to hear rather than what, what they really think. So, you know, again, in my experience, that's a very valuable person in the team is if I, as a boss, know that I can go to you, I can ask you an open question and you will give me your honest view. And I think that's once that's been established as a habit, that also is a stepping stone towards these more open, challenging conversations.
1: Great. That makes a ton of sense to me. Now, I would give a word of caution because I can speak my truth by saying my peer over here is an absolute idiot and I can't stand working with them. That might not be the smartest way to do it. Or you can say, I think the important word to use there are share your truth. My truth is that I am struggling to work effectively with that person. Yes, And to yes. just keep that in, I'm honoring my truth, not attacking somebody else or blaming somebody else or throwing someone else under the bus, um, I think also goes a long ways in being able to speak the honest truth.
2: Yeah, which means the first person ownership rather than the second person projection. So as you say, you could talk about them and what they do or what they don't do, or you can talk about you And where you are and how it makes you feel when certain things happen or what your perception is and keeping it in the first person, very rooted in the first person, I think is that quote about, you know, the ability to make a point without making an enemy that, you know, is attacked um, that, you know, can you make a point without making an enemy or without, you know, attacking someone else? And I think that's that's that skill that um, if you've got someone like that in the team who can do that, then as a boss, I think you really, you really cherish that.
1: Yeah, yeah, because then you really do care about it. Okay, so we, it's clear here through all of this discussion how powerful trust is to create a climate where challenge is possible within the team, from a boss to a subordinate, or upwards to a boss. So just what are the habits that result in trust? You have a number of these.
2: Yes, I mentioned earlier the three pillars of trust. So these pillars, ability, integrity, benevolence, and these have been established in the literature on trust for for many years. But the focus of, of my research was to get underneath the pillars into the behavioral habits. And what came out of that research at Aston Business School in the UK are nine habits of trust. So three habits under each of these three pillars So under the habit of ability, for example, we have three habits, which is deliver, um, coach, be consistent. Under the habit of integrity, we have be honest, be open, be humble. And under the pillar of benevolence, we have the habits of evangelize, be brave, be kind. I think we talked about that benevolence uh, aspect earlier. And the key thing with this trust formula is that it's not ability add integrity add benevolence it's ability times integrity times benevolence and the maths of that means that if you score zero on any one pillar your trustworthiness is shot. but if you're in the upper quartile of each of those three pillars then big numbers multiply by big numbers and that's a way to differentiate the trust of a leader or a team or indeed a brand over a period of time.
1: Okay. So to, under, so ability times integrity times benevolence. So ability is I deliver, I'm coaching, and I'm being consistent. Yep. And integrity means I'm honest, I'm open, and I'm humble. I presume that means by accepting feedback, admitting i made mistakes. And yes. benevolence is evangelize, being brave and being kind. All right, I get all of those, but the word evangelize.
2: Yes, yes, that's always the one that uh, that catches people's people's eyes. Now, what does it mean? I mean, obviously, that's a word that's often used in religious contexts. But if you look at the root of the of the word, evangelize means spread the good news. And when we use it in the context of trust, we're saying that leaders who inspire trust in others. They have a vision, they're passionate about that vision, Uh, they understand what the promised land looks like, and they're very articulate in sharing that vision and motivating others through that vision. It's obvious that they love what they do, and the third component of that evangelizing is that when they take a knock, because we all take a knock, we all get pushbacks and disappointments, great evangelists bounce back quickly. And so that's what that word means in the context of, of trust. It's all about vision, inspiration, resilience, and the passionate communication that really motivates and inspires people to move towards that courageous goal that we talked about earlier.
1: Wow, there's a lot packed in. I'm glad I asked about that one. There's a lot <laughs> packed into that one. When you list these and you say these are the habits of trust, if I were to pick up any research around what makes for great leaders or if I ask a group of people to list leader, the behavior of leaders that they admire, I think you get absolutely every single one of these. Um, so is it true that these habits are what make for great leadership and trust? Are they the same well, thing?
2: Yeah, what we, what we know, what has been proven uh, scientifically is that, is that trust generates multiple positive outcomes for, for staff, for, for clients, for, you know, for performance. And we know that these ha- are the habits that, that inspire trust. So there is an audit trail that says that if you can role model as a leader these habits, then there is an audit trail that leads to trust, and then that trust leads to results, relationships, reputation. So that's sustainable suite of benefits And the other part of the research on on trust that I was focused on was looking at how important is it for the leader to role model this. If we want to create a high trust culture, how big a factor is the individual behavior of the CEO or the senior leadership team? And what the research shows is that the more senior you are, the more there is a ripple effect of your role modeling and your leading by example. So if if I'm in your team and you're the boss and I notice you being kind then I, because we're all incessant imitators, I I will tend to follow that. I will tend to copy that behavior. And that can spread through a culture in a very organic, subtle way over time to create a broader culture of kindness in in an organization or a broader culture of coaching or a broader culture of of being humble. All of these habits can be role-modeled and the power that the leader has... um, to affect others is is significant. So on the one hand, that's a big responsibility because if you don't model these habits, you're clearly uh, influencing people in a, a different way. But yeah. if you do model these habits, then you, know, you can see yourself as affecting change in the system. And for me, that's a, a really exciting vision for an individual leader because so many times we're frustrated by we can't change things in the way that we'd like to change things and we have all these sophisticated programs that we like to introduce Whereas actually here, here's a program called Your Behavior. And it starts with you. It finishes with you. It's about how you behave from nine to five, what people see in your habits. And that if you can uh, work on these habits, you will also be working on influencing the system. And I just think that's a really um, powerful vision of change.
1: I know why I like you so much, John. It's because we have the same philosophy that regardless where you are in the organization, you can impact the people around you by the way you conduct yourself, by the way you behave, by the attitudes that you take, and so on. And you talk about this in terms of trust, but I think you can absolutely make make a difference all the way through. Powerful. And we have certainly all seen the case where leaders – Don't do those nine behaviors and how rapidly that disintegrates a culture as well. So there's an important point there. Okay, John, we've got four minutes and I want to do an unusual thing because as I was preparing for this and looking through your mini books, I discovered that you had written a book called Poems for Coaching and I picked it up and read one of the poems and found it quite intriguing and inspirational. So I'd actually like to end with one of your poems as a different way of reflecting on each person as their own leader.
2: Great. Well, this is where I get challenged because uh, this is where you're, you're challenging me to go into the uh, the zone of uncomfortable debate because I don't typically share my poetry in this way, but I, I accept the challenge and I, and I, and I'm really excited by the challenge. And um, one of the, the, the poem I'd like to share really goes back to the beginning of this call where I talked about loving a challenge, and I talked about it uh, in the metaphor of of climbing mountains and and this 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 poem is called closer and it, and it 's really about getting closer to the top of a mountain and obviously that 's a very challenging thing to get to a top of a mountain so as you listen and as the uh, <coughs> listeners uh, listen to this poem, I just, just imagine that this is, uh, this is someone who spent a long time climb in and uh, has has a little bit further to go but, but can see the peak of the mountain. So far now, so far now from the tents below beyond the tiny point of no return a bridge collapses behind a rock falls past in silence to leave the sound of breathing breathing in breathing out Where are we taking, we, with our new lungs and limbs? Where are we taking, we, in this matrix of opportunity? What keeps us going save the spiritual rope between us? What keeps us going save the thrill of tomorrow and looking out on a new sky and pausing to drink in our laughter and say our prayers? before committing ourselves again to find our highest selves in this changing world. Thank you.
1: Thank you, John. I think you more than succeeded the challenge. That is really, um, and you see again, I think one of the things that the poetry reminds us is the power of looking at the world, at our experience in a different way. In a different artistic way, in a different playful way, a variety of ways, and this is just one more. I love that. So far from the tents below, where are we taking we? What a lovely metaphor. And on that note, John, it's been lovely to have you as a guest again. Again, to remind those who are listening, it's John Blakey, Dr. John Blakey. The book that we have been talking about is Challenging Coaching. And if you want more poetry, it's poems for coaching. And if that isn't enough, the trusted executive will also give you more inspiration. John, thank you for being a guest.
2: Thank you, Wanda. It's a pleasure.
1: All right. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone.